Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Hear Me Roar. When the feminist movement gained momentum in the 1970s, a famous line began to be the battle cry of the movement. I am woman, hear me roar. Yet, ironically, true femininity acknowledges its inability to roar and yields itself to the mightier roar of Jehovah. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Hear me roar. For those of you that uh, were around in the early 70s, uh, this was a key line that became the defining line of the uh, sort of the female empowerment movement or the women's liberation movement. And so why in the world would Eric stick it at the uh, as the title on a sermon. Well, we have a whole bunch of women around today, so I figure this is not a bad time to bring this up. Hear me roar. It comes from a lady, a singer named Helen Reddy, and the famous line is, I am woman, hear me roar. She means well, maybe. You see, it is such an irony that there would even be a line like this that is floating around because aren't women the delicate, soft, flower-like things? And then here we have this statement, hear me roar. You see, it's an overcompensation for something that was, has been done for centuries to women. And men have not handled their roles properly. And yet the retaliating effect of women has not been handled in a healthy manner either. And as a result, both are out of joint and both are doing anything uh, that is truly productive and heavenly. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to poke at this issue. I'd like to deal with sort of the irony of such a statement like this. And I would like us to correct it. Because sometimes there's an ache. Like, for for instance, in femininity today, there's an ache to be able to express something. And yet it is being improperly directed. And as a result, it is creating confusion, it is creating disaster in a culture, it is actually destroying masculinity, which I understand where the venom comes from, and I understand what the backlash is due to. However, a backlash is not the way that God handles us. We have done terrible things unto our God, and he doesn't just lash out or lash back. He actually came and washed our feet, and he gave us a hope and an opportunity to change. And so I would like to walk through this. This is going to be politically incorrect in how I start. And yet I want you to know that I'm probably one of the biggest fans of femininity on earth. That's not an an overstatement. I am a champion for femininity. However, there is not any liberal group that would want to side with Eric Ludi. So how in the world am I a champion for femininity? Don't you have to be a liberal to be a champion for femininity? Not on your life. That's ridiculous. You have to be a Christian. God created femininity. He knows what it's built for. And when you understand God in his heart, how could you not become a fan of femininity? But you know what femininity represents? Femininity represents something, and it is very uncomfortable to actually just be straightforward and start talking about it. It represents what we could term the weaker vessel. Oh, can you believe Eric just said that? I'm not allowed to say that, am I? That's what the Bible says, not Eric Ludi. And by the way, I do not believe that women are just weak. And I, I've used this story in the past, but there was some big competition where two 
Brazilian men, I forgot what, I think they were judo experts, I'm not exactly positive, I, I didn't see the event, I didn't watch the event, I'm not into judo, but they called some national invitation to all the martial arts, all the, uh, I guess that would be the term, the martial arts from around the world, to send their best down to Brazil, and they would fight it out to see which was the best martial art. And so these judo champions, there were two brothers, they literally just destroyed everyone that came down. That's probably why they sent out the invitation. They were pretty cocky that they had this all figured out. Well, there was one martial art that hadn't responded. Either they didn't get the notice or they just ignored it at first. But they started to hear the bragging from down in Brazil. And that was Krav Maga out of Israel. And so they sent down their best. They didn't have to send down many. They sent down one. A woman. I think she was around 98 pounds. She showed up in Brazil, and in a matter of, I think it was like 2.5 seconds, had the Brazilian champion hitting the mat, crying out for mercy. So, no, the point in this message is not to say that a woman is inherently weak or physically unable to do anything. It is a spiritual statement And it's very, very important that we as the body of Christ understand it. Introducing the weaker vessel. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Can you believe the Bible would just so boldly state that? I mean, isn't Paul or Peter, in this case, blushing in this situation, saying, I'm not supposed to say that? Unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You see, a man's prayers are hindered when he does not appropriate properly his relationship with his wife. When he does not treat her properly, his spiritual life is blockaded. For the health of a marriage, and I could say for the health of a family, and for the health of the church, and for the health of a society, because marriage is only a microcosm of what God does in a global sense, for the health of the kingdom of heaven. If the men do not treat their women in an understanding way, the church is hindered, their prayers are hindered, and the entire system begins to deteriorate. Okay, so that's just what it says. 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Now, remember we were talking about weak. Okay, now, I know that that is an offensive type of word. However, I'm just going to, I'm going to do a sales pitch on you to just embrace the word instead of fight it today. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So when we understand that weak is not necessarily the introduction to you being under the thumb of something, to be controlled by something, to be stepped on by something. It is actually the platform or the soil through which God's glory is made manifest and his strength is revealed. And so it's when we fight the concept of weakness that we end up doing all the damage. Now, let me prepare you for something here. We said that the feminine in this room, in in this culture, represents the weaker. Well, did you know that what the church represents? The church represents the weaker vessel. We are called the bride of Christ. And so therefore, 
It doesn't matter who is in this room and who's listening. If we're Christians, you know what we have to accept? We're the weaker vessel. Could you imagine getting all upset about God's chauvinism to say that Jesus is our head? And I am not about to submit to him. Yeah, and your life falls apart. But when you understand your role, you submit and say, you know what? I need his strength. You actually demonstrate how life is supposed to work. You see, strength comes through understanding your weakness, and as a result, you become the soil in which the strength of God is made manifest. Christianity. So here's a possibility of, if we were to say, I am woman, hear me roar. Okay, so which we as the bride of Christ could say, I'm the bride, hear me roar. We could, and so that would be the equivalent of, I am lamb, hear me roar. Is there anything more unlikely to roar on planet Earth than a lamb? You see, we are actually very weak creatures, and God makes it very clear. I know we want to sh- you know, snub our nose at the world and the people that have put us under their thumb and have stepped on us, and we want them to know that we have a roar. But in between our roars, we're like, <laughs> You see, we're faking it. We don't actually have anything to give. We're weak and we're insecure. And it's we're fighting from the back end of a cage. Instead of recognizing there's more to Christianity than trying to fake it. How many of us have lived like this? Hey, I can do this for God. I can live for God. I can love. I can serve. I can be pure. No, we can't. We are unable. We are the weaker one. And we need something to help us. And until we recognize our position in this whole thing, we will fail and we will flail. Christianity. It's the restoration of the weak and rebellious. This is just going to be a quick overview. It's extremely fascinating. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything throughout all of history. It's the lineage of majesty. From Adam, there was a failure. And and God says, after the fruit on the tree was eaten, that he says, out of the seed of this woman, I will bring forth a Messiah. And this seed will crush the head of the serpent. It's the seed of the woman. But he wasn't just talking about Eve, but he sort of was. You see, out of Eve, or out of a woman, what was Eve? She was rebellious. And out of this rebellion, out of this weaker vessel, will come forth strength. That was the prophecy right from the very beginning. In fact, the first prophecy was that one. Out of a woman, of all places, out of the rebellious and weak. So the seed of the weak will bring forth the strength. Isn't that an incredible statement? Mary. And so who does God choose? All these... Thousands of years later, do you know that there was a woman that fulfilled this? And it wasn't just Eve, the rebellious. It was Mary. Now, how many of you are named Mary in here? Do we have any Marys in here? Miriam? We don't have any in the whole room. Wow. You know what Mary means? This is quite amazing. It means rebellious. The weak and rebellious is Mary. Now, she was pure and she was a virgin. She was supple to the purposes of God. However, she's symbolic. She represents us. She represents who, the one in whom Christ is born. Who's he born in? Well, 
by the way, you are the weak and the rebellious. And God takes the weak things of this world and he breaks down the barriers of all that is strong. He takes the weakest things. Don't try and get away from the fact that we are weak. It's okay. Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. So you want to truly be strong, you need to understand your weakness. It's a secret to it. Women, the first commissioned. Now this is such an irony, and you can just see God's sense of humor in this. That women have always been the bane of the existence. Can't you imagine all the way down through history? Yeah, there's Eve again. Getting us all in trouble. She's the one that ate of the fruit first. She's the one that heeded the serpent's lie. I mean, this is all throughout history, and many of you in here have heard it time and time again. I'm so sick and tired of hearing that. You know that Jesus at the cross rectified what went wrong with the woman. So, not only is he born of a woman, which is quite a statement, by the way, that the Messiah did not come from the seed of a man. Did you know that? He's the seed of God the Father. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus, in Mary's womb. He's born of the seed of a woman, the weak and rebellious. That's amazing. And then, after the cross, Jesus Christ rises again, and who does he appear to? He appears to women. And what amazes me about this is the first great commission wasn't to the apostles. It was to these women to go to the apostles and be the first ones to share the gospel. Isn't that an amazing statement? Who was the one that, that carried the fruit to Adam? Eve. Who's the one that carried the good news to the apostles? Isn't that amazing? It was a woman. And most likely named Mary. Almost every single woman back then seemed to be Mary, named Mary. <laughs> the weak and the rebellious were converted to now become the instruments of God's grace. I think it's brilliant. The bride is the church. So does God have a sense of humor or what? He calls us the women in the relationship. He says, he's the groom. Oh, and by the way, you're the weaker vessel. So we can bristle at this and say, I am woman, hear me roar. And yet we're missing the whole point. God's saying, you need me. And until you recognize that you need me, you cannot flourish the way I intend you to flourish. There's not going to be any roar that comes out of you. You'll be in the fetal position, weeping in the corner, trying to act like you're strong. God has built us weak, but he is strong to enable in and through our acknowledgement of that and our dependency upon him to truly reveal the strength of heaven. Rectifying what went wrong in the garden. The woman was the initial carrier of the forbidden fruit. Now, I don't know how it worked, but somehow Eve had this fruit. You could just see the juice dripping down her chin. And she turns to Adam. She was the carrier. Now she is the initial carrier of the fruit of righteousness. You know that the fruit of righteousness, Jesus Christ, was born in a woman? She's the initial carrier. He didn't choose a man. Men don't have wombs. He didn't choose the seed of a man. He chose the seed of a woman as the initial carrier of the fruit of righteousness. He's rectifying something. The woman was the initial harbinger or messenger of death and rebellion. Now she is the initial harbinger of life and salvation. That's pretty amazing. You see, God is deliberately choosing the weak and the rebellious. But the, what we're emphasizing in this message is the weak. He has chosen the weak. It is his deliberate decision to choose the weak. You see, there's a lot that he could choose. 
could have chosen the high priest to be the one to do it. Instead, he chooses the weakest. He says, ah, right there. And they're like, me? No, no, move to the side. Yeah, you. Me? It's the little weak one, Mary. He chose her, a little girl? Oh, God, that isn't how it works here in the Hebrew culture. You see, not only is she little, but she's a woman. That isn't the right way of doing things. And God says, yes, it is. You see, I'm deliberately choosing that. Because you're all so smart. You're all so strong. I'm going to show you what true strength is. I will take the weak and I will demonstrate it. How exactly does a lamb roar? You see, in a sense, as a church, we are to be fluffy lambs with the faces of lions. I don't know exactly how to describe this, but though we are weak, we have a roar. But the roar is not ours. It is given to us. You see, we are not really the ones who can claim to be all strong and powerful. However, we become strong and powerful, and that's Christianity. We are not left weak. Though we are weak, we are not left weak. And that's a very, very important point to begin to build on here. So here's a step in the right direction. This isn't our final statement, but this is getting in the right direction. I am in Christ. Hear me roar. Okay, now that's, we've migrated quite a bit from I am woman, hear me roar. In other words, look at me, I'm very impressive. No, I'm not impressive. And so what I've done is I've turned to the one who is impressive, and his name is Jesus Christ, and I've entered into the clothing of who he is. He is strong, and he is mighty. He is a mighty fortress and refuge. So imagine that we have a strong tower here, and someone is shooting arrows at you, and you're weak. And so what should you do? Hug the tower? You know, and the arrows still keep hitting you. However, you're esteeming the tower. The key to Christianity is you must get inside the tower. And when you are inside the tower, his strength, you know that wall around that tower is strong. You're not strong. He's strong. And so when you enter into his strength, you can sort of stand there as the archer is, you know, that guy who shoots fiery arrows at you. And you can, you know, get on the intercom and say, ha, I'm in Christ. Hear me roar. In other words, it's not your strength, it's his strength. And so as a result, those arrows no longer can reach you because you have entered in to Jesus Christ. And so your strength is actually not your own, however you have real strength. But it is, in a sense, his strength that is given to you. And you are believing in him and as a result, sharing in the virtue of it. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, which means to be placed into, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. What? There is neither male nor female. Well, isn't that interesting? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Abraham's seed represents the lineage of faith. And you are of that lineage, which is Christ, when you believe and come to Christ. And when we enter into Christ, not only are the arrows of the enemy silenced, where they no longer can harass us, but no longer is there this distinguishing between male and female or hierarchy. 
of strength. We all have equal access to the inheritance of the King of Kings. So we have a tough time knowing how to appropriate that, oftentimes in Christianity today, because there are very specific things prescribed to the church of how we function as the church in order to reveal the heavenly pattern. But the way a man is to treat a woman is the way that Jesus treats his bride. So you can ask the question on this exact point. When you hear, you know, know, because there's a lot of men that, by the way, they know about five scriptures in the Bible, and they all have to do with the position of the woman. You notice that? It's like they they can only quote those scriptures. Hey, I think it says in the Bible that you're to submit to me. Yeah, it says a lot more than that, bucko. It says that you're supposed to love her. It says that you're supposed to lay down your life and serve her. It says that you're supposed to be the first sufferer. If there's only food for one, you give your food to her. If there's only one blanket, you put that blanket around her shoulders. You are to be Christ unto her. Did you miss that part? And that's far more important. You see, the example of Christ unto his bride is of the essence and of the most importance in unveiling to our, our hearts and to this world around us the gospel. So, we have a changing of things. We have an alteration of things. Being in Christ changes. Accepting weakness and yet not accepting weakness. And this is unlocking the seeming contradiction. You see, you're weak, but I'm going to tell you, but don't accept your weakness. But, you're supposed to accept your weakness, but don't accept your weakness. And you're like, what? How does that work? Well, I know it sounds like a seeming contradiction, so let me unpack it. The Christian says, I accept the weakness I have natively in and of myself. I'm a weak vessel that needs the power of God in order to do anything of real eternal value and substance. You see, you have strength to do earthly things. So maybe you could train in Krav Maga and take down the judo champions in Brazil. I'm not saying you don't have strength. I'm saying that in your native state, spiritually, you are weak. You are a sheep. And so as a result, you can produce nothing of a heavenly nature. Nothing. And as a result, truly before the bar of heaven and the economy of the kingdom of heaven, you have nothing to offer. And until you recognize that and stop fighting against this fact, and you don't accept your weakness, you'll never be made strong. You'll always remain weak. So the Christian accepts weakness, but then listen to this. But I do not accept that my native weakness defines who I am in Christ. I know I'm weak, but I'm not to remain weak when I enter into Christ. In Christ, I am made strong. But how am I made strong? I must first understand and accept my weakness. So my weakness is the soil in which his strength is made perfect. I do not accept that my native weakness defines who I am in Christ. For though I am natively weak, he is natively strong. And I am in him, and he is in me. Therefore, the life I live in this body is one that exudes and demonstrates his power at work in me. You know what the Christian is supposed to be the picture of strength on planet Earth? Though we are weak? (laughs) I I know that sounds strange, but it's, it's like the equivalent of a sheep. And we're standing there, and there's a whole wolf pack there. And we're like, and this wolf pack is snarling and salivating to destroy that sheep. But that sheep understands its weakness. So what does it do? It sees the shepherd, nudges up itself against the shepherd, 
and goes, and all the wolf pack flees. Now, are you impressed with the sheep's strength? Sort of. But you can see that it's a sheep. And it has no ability to truly roar. But it is borrowing the roar from the shepherd. And as a result, that sheep, though it be weak and though it accepts its weakness, knows to come unto Christ and find his strength. And as a result, he exerts the authority and the power of the shepherd. And that which is weak is demonstrated in this natural realm as strong. Oh, how strength works. And what shall I more say? This is in Hebrews 11, and this is a massively truncated version. You need to read the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 to fully get the warp and woof of it. But for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and of Samson and Jephthah, of David also and of Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Listen to this one. I made it big for you just so you, could, you wouldn't miss it. Out of weakness were made strong. Waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. That is one epic movie right there. And yet, those, that's the history of faith. Those that walk in faith, those that enter into the strength of God, that's how they live. So let's, you're going to notice that it says, who through faith, and then it gives a whole list of things. So this is actually what it says, but it's grammatically incorrect, which is why it's sort of hard to wrap our mind around. Who through faith, out of weakness, were made strong. So if we took out all the filler stuff in there of all the subdued kingdoms, you know, uh, obtained righteousness. Well, I'm sorry. Now I got it all. Who obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and so on. We take that out. It says, who through faith, out of weakness, were made strong. You see, grammatically, it should say this. Who through faith were made strong out of weakness. That's actually what the ESV version says. Because that's the grammatically correct way of saying it, even though word for word would bring you to this. So who through faith, out of weakness, We're made strong. We're made strong out of weakness. So, through faith, coming to Christ and saying, I'm weak. And in coming to the strong one, through their weakness, they were made strong. But they had to understand their weakness. They didn't discard their weakness. They weren't irritated by their weakness. They embraced it as part of God's brilliance. The puddle principle. Now, some of you that have been around Ellerslie have heard me talk about the puddle principle. And uh, my subtitle for this is Giving Up the Little in Order to Prove the More. The puddle principle is extremely important in understanding how weakness is made strong. So I'm just about to mow the lawn. This is about uh, maybe six, seven years ago. And I have a, a problem. Something that's just sort of been irritating me. And I'm out there. I'm in the driveway. I remember exactly where I was standing. I had a car right there. And I was about to pull uh, the... What's that thing called? The throttle? What, what is the thing? The string? The pull string. Okay. I was about to do the pull string. I'm a, I'm a mechanical guy, you can tell. I know how to work them. I don't know how to describe them. Uh, and I was about to pull that string, and I'm looking over at my car, and the tires are bald on it. And then I'm, I'm also having a flashback of my car that's parked on the other side of my house where the tires are bald. And my, my problem was I didn't have money. Now, it's not that I didn't have money. I had money to pay my normal bills, but tires, that, that's just one of those things that most of us forget to have that nice little savings account set aside for tires. I mean, no one, and even if you did think I should have a little account set, off for, set apart for tires, you don't want to do it. And you'll borrow from it every time you, get, you need to. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't want to get tires anyways. I'm going to spend that money over here. Tires? The most unromantic thing on planet Earth. 
And so I'm looking at this, and it's actually sort of a, a, an issue for my soul because my wife and kids are needing to drive around, and their tires are going bad. And I can't even say, oh, yeah, use my car because my tires uh, are going bad too. And so I feel like I'm forsaking my masculinity and protecting even my family, but I don't have the money. So as I'm standing there with the pull string, and you know, I'm about ready to do this, I have sort of a conversation with God. I don't know if I was leaning over like this, having the conversation, but that's my mental picture. And it was sort of like, Eric, why don't you get tires? It's like, God, I, I know that, I would, I would love to, by the way, God, so thanks for bringing it up. Uh, <laughs> But I don't have the money for buying tires. It was going to be, I don't know, somewhere around $750 or something. It was way beyond what felt comfortable to spend on tires, rubber. Yeah, I, could, could I have $750, pound, $750 worth of rubber, please? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, who wants to do that? And so I needed to get $750 worth of rubber. And, and so I was having that conversation with God. Why don't, you, why don't you get tires? Yeah, God, I'd love to, but I don't have the money. And God sort of asked a follow-up question. What do you mean you don't have the money? Well, you see, I just don't have the money. Are you saying the money's not in your account right now? This is a very interesting question God was sort of leading to. You see, in my account, I did have the money. There's probably, you know, $767 in my account. So I actually technically had the money, but that money was required to pay a bill in the next week. And so I don't have the money. Okay, so any of the guys in here could fully understand what I'm talking about. It's like I don't actually have it because it's already allocated. And so God said, uh, so you're saying you don't have the money? Well, I mean, technically that money is in my account, but it's not available to me. And that's when God began to press his point. He sort of set me up for this. It's like, uh, so if you did what you know you're supposed to do, are you afraid that that money will not be there? Uh, for your bill next week? Uh, I guess. Uh, this is when God began to teach me something we'll call the puddle principle. There's a little puddle here on the ground. You can splash in it. You know, it's not that big, uh, but it's enough. It's like the type of thing that little kids are gr- gravitate towards. Like little Avi, I saw her the other day standing in a puddle. It was about this big. She was just standing with her nice dress shoes on. Uh, so kids are attracted to this puddle. And we as adults, we lose our you know, our fascination with puddles. I don't know when it, when it happens, but it happens somewhere in the, in the journey. And even as we get older, we get sort of mad at puddles because that's our financial resources right there. We don't have much. And our needs in life are far bigger than that puddle can match. You ever felt that? It's like, what? These other people out there have lakes, and I have a puddle? Now, here, here's the interesting thing about the puddle. We oftentimes base our reasoning and are living off of what we see and what we see in our puddle. So God says, you need tires. And I look at my puddle and I say, I don't have what it takes. If I took that, I would be out of water for next week when I need it. So I can't spend anything now because I don't have enough in my puddle. If you gave me a lake like that guy down the road, then I would get tires. But only then will I get my tires. And so this is what God began to show me is that what I see with my eyes is not actually what I have. I'm in Christ, which means I have access to everything that is Christ's. And do you know what, what's underneath the surface of the earth that I can't see? You see, as a Christian, I have a little puddle 
And God almost seems to purposely shrink my little puddle down just to see how I'm doing. Eric, where's your trust and where's your confidence? It's in the puddle. No, Eric, see, that's your problem. Your problem is you're putting all your trust in what you see instead of what I've given to you by promise. Underneath this earth is a huge ocean. It's called an aquifer. And it's all of God's bounty. And it attaches to this puddle. It feeds this puddle. But that puddle only fills up when it's emptied. And so when in obedience I take what is in that puddle and I spend it in the places God tells me to, you know what's going to happen to that puddle? Bloop. It's going to fill back up. You know that it will never run dry? Yeah, that's God's principle. It's called the puddle principle. You see, all these other people on this earth, they may have a lake, but guess what? There's no aquifer beneath it. And so in a time of drought, you know what will happen to their lake? It'll dry up. You see, other people may have access to things in this earth right now, available to them in a moment. You have more than all the earth combined accessible in and through your one puddle. But you don't know it. So until someone begins to explain to you that out of weakness, God's strength is going to be made manifest. There's no way of explaining how your little puddle has sustained you through even the greatest economic collapses. We as Christians do not fear because we, though we only have a puddle, have access to an unseen aquifer. You see, most of us just wish that God would pull back the crust of the earth and we could swim around in the aquifer for a little and then we'd believe. If I could just see that aquifer, then I would have confidence. And what God says is, no, you have eyes of faith to see it. It's based in promise. I'm telling you, it's there. And if you knew that that aquifer was there, would you be willing to live differently? It's still hard, God. It's hard because all I see is that couldn't you expand it a little? Over time in your life, you'll find that you have seasons where you have even less than a puddle. Some of you could testify to that. A puddle? I'd be happy with a puddle. I got a drip. (laughs) And some of you, God actually increases. You could look at George Mueller. The man had, at times, a puddle. Sometimes he had a lake. He gave away more money in his lifetime than most people ever have. And yet he didn't live on any. It was a constant flow through channel. And yet so much came through. I don't know if you'd describe it as he just had a puddle always. But he was constantly giving. There's stories of that all throughout history of Christian men and women who believed their God. And they tested the aquifer principle. It's amazing. So giving up the little in order to prove the more. So what I did is I took what was in my puddle. It was one of the riskiest things I ever did in my life. I know it doesn't sound very risky. But I took, you know, basically all my money in my account. And I went out and bought rubber. And it was hard. I mean, that was just one of those things. And you know what God did? Bloop. He filled up my puddle. He always does. He always has. Why do we doubt him? You ever notice that some of us complain about the fact that we finally get that bonus check or something extra comes in and then our tires go out on us? Like, oh, but why do you think you got the extra check? It's because God knew that you needed it. So instead of complaining about the fact that you're not getting ahead, why don't you start bragging about the fact that you have an unseen aquifer that will never run dry? There's just a different mentality we need to begin to appropriate. The gospel exchange, giving up the little in order to gain the more. See, this is the same principle of the puddle. You have a little puddle, you give up the little to gain the more. Well, the gospel is based on the same principle. You see, you have a little, less than I typically describe it as a little handful of pebbles, and they're precious to you. By the way, if you went to, the, uh, to some uh, flea market and tried to sell your pebbles, how much do you think you'd get for them? 
You wouldn't get a lot. Pebbles? Could you imagine? Pebbles! Pebbles! And it's like, three bucks for a handful of pebbles. And then pretty soon it's like, 150 for a handful of pebbles. Pretty soon you're like, free pebbles! Pebbles for free. And then pretty soon it's like, I'll pay you $20 to take my pebbles. In other words, they're worthless. You're going to have to pay someone else to take them. However, to you, they're so valuable. You grew up with these pebbles. And God's saying, would you be willing to relinquish your little? Could you give up your pebbles? Your life, your strength, your ambitions, your dreams, your desires. Would you be willing to give those up? Because they're not helping you. They're crippling you. They're dead weight in your life. Are you willing to give that up so that I can give you all that I am? It's funny that most of us look at Christianity as a bad deal. We're like, yes, for everything? You know what everything is translated into in our, in our language and our understanding? It means everything. It means every single thing. And we're like, what? That is way too much, God. You can't just ask for everything. I can give you one day a week. I can give you 10% of my income. I, and that's a lot. I cannot give you everything. How dare you ask for that? It's like, I can't believe you're asking for my handful of pebbles. And he's like, uh, Eric, I'm ready to give you a truckload of jewels. And you're holding on to your pebbles. Who's getting the bad deal? God could say, I'm getting pebbles. <laughs> and you're complaining about the justice and the equity of this? That's amazing how we think. The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which when a man is found, he hides and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You give up everything to get that treasure. When you see it, you say, it's worth my life. The question is, have you seen it? Have you ventured into that field? And did you find it hidden? And you're like, whoa! And God says, go do it. And you know exactly what to do. You're going to give up everything you have in life to get that. You give up your little in order to get the more. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you think God's making a point here? In other words, when you find the pearl of great price, when you find the treasure, who is that treasure? Well, his name's Jesus. When you find it, when you find the grandeur of the gospel, what do you do? You respond. And how, is, how do you respond? You sell all. You give up everything. You forsake your life so that you can get the more, which is Jesus. In Scripture, there's two Greek words. You're going to see nardos and pastikos. Not very attractive words. Like for, well, pastikos isn't bad, but nardos. Um, I don't know if that would be a, a good name to name a girl. Uh, you know, nardos, nardos ludi. Uh, but <laughs> it doesn't have that poetic ring to it. And I think it's because it reminds me of like lard. You know, like lard or lardos just sounds like I don't know. I don't want to go into that. But, uh, however, this word is actually a precious word. And in the, in the Greek, it, it probably didn't have the same negative ring to it. Because it is actually the word for what we translate as spikenard. So, spikenardos, you can see that in there. But it's, I'll just read. Nard, the head or spike of a fragrant East Indian plant, which yields a juice of delicious odor, which the ancients used, either pure or mixed, in the preparation of a most precious ointment typically understood as spikenard. The word in the Greek, though, is not just nardos, it is combined with something. So in the two stories where you see spikenard being used and poured out on Jesus, it's actually the words nardos 
and then pastikos. And pastikos is, for whatever reason, not translated as clearly as nardos is. However, it's combined to create the word spikenard. It's having the power of persuading, skillful in producing belief, trusty, faithful, that which can be relied on, the object of trust. And so Mary of Bethany, she has a precious treasure. She has a box of ointment. It's called spikenard, and it's worth so much. I don't know how many of you have ever thought of investing a year's wages. Just save it all up. Don't spend any on yourself and put it all into a box of nardos. It seems like a bad investment. However, back in these days, they did things a little different than we do. It was, it was a form of investment. So they, we can invest in stocks and bonds. They can invest in boxes of ointment. And so Mary has her investment. You know that she probably even thought, it's like, oh, I'm so glad I have this. This is worth a year's wages. If something goes bad, I can always lean on my box of spikenard. Oh, I'm so glad I have that box of spikenard. Maybe she would go in every now and then and stroke the box. And she had confidence in that box of spikenard. However, she finds a treasure. His name is Jesus. And she looks around in her house and she sees that which she has put her faith in outside of him. That thing that she has relied on. And it's the nardos pastikos. It is the object of her faith. And she takes that box. And though she knows she's going to look like an idiot and a fool to all the world, she takes it in where Jesus is sitting eating. And she breaks it upon him. And you know who was upset about this? His name is Judas Iscariot. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, was horrified at this waste, is what he called it. He called it a waste. You know, when you take that which you have, your everything, and you give it to God, you are doing it because you've seen the treasure. Judas only saw treasure in coins. He never saw treasure in Jesus. And as a result, it didn't make any sense that he would waste something of such value. Do you know what Judas did next after he saw this? He went and betrayed Jesus. So this is a very significant scene here. Something is happening in this scene. And Jesus understands what she is doing. And he doesn't call it a waste. He doesn't agree with Judas. He says, this is right. In fact, what this woman has done will be shared whenever the gospel is preached. Does that mean we need to talk about Mary of Bethany and her box of spikenard every time we share the gospel? No, we need to talk about what she did. Because what she did is the essence of the gospel. You give up your life. You come and die in order that you might live. Take that which you trust in outside of Jesus Christ and come and put your trust and your faith wholly and fully in him. You have a treasure. And so we introduce people to the treasure. And we say he's worthy of everything. And that's the gospel. The widow's opportunity. Now, I originally thought of titling this section, The Widow's Test. But have you noticed that test and opportunity don't seem like the same thing? When, when we're in school, a lot of us begrudge tests. We don't like them, and we get upset about the fact that they even give them. Why do they give tests? Have you ever noticed that there's always the students in school that are, like, brilliant? They have those geniuses, and when they have their spare time, they love to study. And we usually make fun of them. Uh, but when tests come along, do you ever notice that they get excited? Like, oh, good, a test. And we're like, oh, there they go again. 
Why are they excited for a test? It's because they're prepared. You know that if you're prepared for a test, you want a test? You know that if you're trained as a warrior for battle, do you know that you, what you want more than anything else is battle? You want to prove yourself in battle. If you have been studying something day in and day out, day in and day out, well, guess what you want? You want to prove that you know it. Have you ever seen a child that loves that moment? It's like, could you show your dad what you learned? And because they know it so well and they are desiring to showcase that, they jump at the opportunity to prove it. They know it well. Well, this is the widow's opportunity. It's not a test. It's an opportunity. However, most of you in here, your first instinct is going to say, that's a test. That's not very fun. Well, it depends on if you're ready for it or not. You see, widow. A widow is a woman. I know you know that, but I'm just emphasizing that. She is a weak woman, but she's more weak than the average woman. She is the weakest of women. And so what God chooses in this illustration is to show something. He's to show that he's going to choose the weakest of women in order to build his case for his glory in a generation. This is an amazing story. He chooses a widow. So who do you think we are in this story? We're not the prophet Elijah. We are the widow. It is the church of Jesus Christ. This is a profound and extraordinary story, but to recognize he's using a picture of weakness. Instead of fighting the weakness, let's embrace the fact. You know that I need to embrace the fact that I'm the widow in this story too? It's okay. It's okay. And I'm fully in agreement with the fact that I'm weak. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to call you chauvinists if you call me weak. I know I'm weak. I know I have nothing to give outside of Jesus Christ. You see, I have natural skill and natural ability. I could try and do this work that I've been assigned in that, and it would fall flat. It would be miserable. It would be ridiculous, and all of us would know it. We'd smell the fruit of the flesh in the air, and we would be disgusted. There's nothing worse than someone trying to lead in Christianity with the right arm of their own strength. It's disgusting. It's disgusting to the church. It's disgusting to God. But when we all just acknowledge our weakness and we nuzzle up to the ankle of the shepherd and we say, yeah, he's so good. Watch what he will do. Watch this. Hey, wolves, in the name of my shepherd, get out of here. And they're like, huh, ah. And they don't like it at all. It mocks them. It holds them in contempt. And we as the sheep all get together and we laugh. However, we all know that we're sheep and we know how ridiculous it is that we can tell wolves to go away. We, we understand how preposterous this is. I mean, this whole thing is, a, is hilarious. It really is. That God would choose us to represent him. Why doesn't he just come down and do all the work himself? And say, so he says, no, I'd like to condescend to use you. You see, I'm going to take the weak things. I've chosen the weak things of this earth. It's just his way. Strength proven through greatest weakness. So you cannot think of a greater weakness than what we're going to see. So in 2 Corinthians, just as a lead into this story, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Well, it sounds like everything we've been saying, isn't it? And some of you knew exactly where that was coming from the whole time. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. Listen to this last line. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Well, that doesn't make any sense. If we were talking to Paul, we would say, Paul, 
You make sense most of the time. You're very logical. But that last line doesn't make any sense. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. No, when I'm weak, then I'm weak. That would be logical. When I'm weak, I'm weak. No, he says, no, when you're weak, then you're strong. When you appropriate your weakness, when you accept your weakness, and then you turn unto the source of strength, you are strong. A sheep, when he tries to take on the wolves all by himself, remains weak and lunch. However, when that sheep acknowledges his weakness and turns unto the strength of the shepherd, then he's strong. So here's our story. In the book of 1 Kings 17, it's the days of Elijah, the prophet. Before this story starts, so try not to read it. Some of you are trying to get ahead of the story and anticipate where I'm going. Elijah has prayed that the rain would cease in Israel. You see, this is judgment that is coming upon a nation. The king is Ahab, his wife Jezebel, not a healthy duo. They are a very, very bad set of leaders. They have rejected God. They have rejected the laws of God. And as a result, judgment has come upon Israel. Okay, This is in the days of the split kingdom, just like our message last night on Hezekiah. And so the capital city of Israel is Samaria, and that's where Ahab and Jezebel hang out. So we'll see some of those words as we progress. But so this is right at this time where basically Elijah has prayed for rain to stop. But even though the rain has ceased, an incredible drought. I mean, you could have a drought for six months and it will destroy the countryside. All the grass will, will die. The cattle will have to be sold, have to be moved elsewhere, or they will die. Because if there's no grass, what's it, what, what are the cattle going to feed off of? What are humans going to feed off of? Three and a half years of this. This is absolute destitution of a nation. Destitution. You have no life, no green. If you have not had any moisture for three and a half years, the cattle are all dead. The humans are dying. There's nothing to sustain them anymore. You want to know what is a priceless uh, thing and probably the, the greatest asset in the culture? Water. How expensive would water be? So God actually supernaturally sustains Elijah for this whole season, three and a half years. How does he do it? How does he sustain his prophet? Well, he's fed by a raven. A raven will drop off meat for him daily. And then he's by this brook, and this brook actually gives him water. And then one day, it dries up. And God has a plan, just like he does for you. Your puddle seems to not be working anymore. What's going on? Don't worry. God's aquifer is still there. He's testing you right now. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? And now we enter into this story. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Okay, uh, <clears throat> God, that's sort of an odd plan. You know, I don't want to infringe upon all your godness and all the things that you're thinking about right now, but maybe you should choose someone other than a, a widow to sustain the mighty prophet. She might not have a lot to give. And in fact, she doesn't. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. Now remember, I've given you context for this so that you won't miss how rude that is. You see, everything about this is socially incorrect. The prophet comes up. All it says is that God has commanded a widow to sustain thee. I don't know how God commanded this widow. Because it never mentions that in the story from here on out. However, it's possible that maybe she had a dream the night before. 
that the prophet was coming and you will sustain him. And she may not be too excited about that because this woman is destitute. She has nothing. Like I said, water is a priceless item in Israel. And we have the prophet who comes up with such gall and audacity to say, give me a cup of water. Elijah, I don't know if you just didn't ever go through you know, social training, but you don't do that, let alone to a widow in a time of drought. That, ugh, it's just awkward. The whole story is sort of awkward. <laughs> and he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. You know, this is just a strange story. Let's keep going, though. So she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. Only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. She has enough oil and flour to make one little cake. And she's planning, she's gathering sticks at that exact moment to go in and cook her last meal and then with her son, die. There's no hope in Israel right now. There's no rain. There's no hope of rain. The guy who prayed to have the rain stopped, though, has arrived into town. And he's the only guy who can make it rain again. But for some reason, he's not praying that the rain returns. He's praying, or he's asking, commanding, that, he, that this widow with nothing but a little puddle, by the way, give everything that's in her puddle to him. What? audacity. What is he thinking? What do you think she's thinking? He seems perfectly healthy and strong to me. (laughs) I don't know why he needs what I have. You know how many of us do this with God? This is, by the way, the picture of the prophet is Jesus, and we are the widow. And what does the mighty prophet come in and say? Could you supply me a cup of water? Oh, and by the way, your last cake of bread, could you give that to me? Thank you. What? How could he? How could he ask for that? Because he's wanting to train you in the puddle principle. He's wanting to train you that if you give your little to him, you will tap into the endless aquifer. But until you do, until you walk in faith and give unto God that which he asks, you will never discover it. You will just die. So, and Elijah said to her, this is when she says, I don't have bread. Does she actually have bread? Yeah, she does. It's just like the puddle principle. She actually has enough for one cake, but that's her last meal, and she's about to eat it with her son and die. And he asks for it. So what's his statement? Do not fear. Go and do as, I have, as you have said, but bring me a small cake from it first. God asks for his portion first. Um, <clears throat> could you give me the cake first? Listen to this. And bring it to me, and afterward, make some for yourself and for your son. Now, what's our logic going to say? I'm not going to have anything afterward, oh dear prophet of the Lord. (laughs) You see, the way things work around here on earth, you see, we're not fed by ravens and brooks. We have oil and flour, and when it runs out, it runs out. He says, go and make that cake and bring it to me first, and afterwards, you can go and make your cake. What is she going to need to be able to make her cake? She's going to need more oil and flour. Does the prophet know that? Let's find out. 
For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her house, he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. It happened. Has it ever happened in your life? Have you ever been willing to give up that last cake to the mighty prophet in order to prove the endless aquifer of your God? Right when you think that's a little awkward, God amps up the story. You see, this is actually part of the flow. Now, I trimmed it down just to make it so that we can get it in this message. But now it happened after these things that the son of the woman... So, remember, this is a widow. Where does her hope lie? What is her spike nard? She has a son. Her only hope lies in the fact that her son has a strong back and he can one day provide for her. So, what does God touch? (laughs) Now, it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. And, and so now, basically, he dies. Okay, there's no breath left in him. That's a creative way of saying he died. So we skip over some of the in-between stuff of the woman having to deal with this fact. And I'm just going to get right down to it. And Elijah said to her, give me your son. Can't you just imagine this woman? She's holding on to her son, weeping. You see, this is what she's clinging to. This is her hope, this is her confidence, this is her trust. And what does the mighty prophet ask for? Could you give me that box of spikenard? Could you give me that which you're putting your confidence in so that I may bring life out of this dead situation? So he took him out of her arms. Fast forward, he goes, takes him up into the upper room and falls upon him. I want to say three times. It was some strange story like that. But the guy pops back to life. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Now, are you willing to give up that which you're putting your confidence in so that you can see the resurrection life of Jesus? Are you willing? You see, many of us have been brought to that point where all we have is a little morsel. All we have is a little flour and a little oil. All we have is a little bit in our puddle. And we know what God's asking of us. And it seems unjust. It doesn't seem right that he would continue to ask of you. There's plenty of other people he could ask for. He has, these other people have resources. They have entire lakes. And he comes to the person with the puddle? God, I don't have it. Oh, yes, you do. You see it right there? Yeah, but I need that for myself. Are you willing to give it to me? Oh, if I do, I'll have nothing. Well, you don't understand how this works, do you? You give that, and you'll have an endless supply. You see, you'll never run dry. You'll always have what you need. You give me that which I need, and you will find that I will always sustain you. It's faith. So out of weakness. So here's our statement. Who through faith were made strong out of weakness. So you need the faith to trust that God means what he says. You need the faith to have eyes to see the aquifer, even though in the natural realm you can't see it. But you know it's there. You know God has the supply. And so they were made strong out of weakness. This widow was made strong, and her story is a testimony to the strength and the power and the provision of God. It's not an impressive story. If Elijah just comes up and asks this lady who has a bounty of things to provide, she's like, yeah, I have so much, it's going to rot. 
so I better give you something. I'm glad God sent you along. No, instead, God uses the widow through which to reveal his strength. See, this is the picture of us. Listen to this line. I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. You know how ridiculous of a line that is? This is the church of Jesus Christ. We are the widow woman who has been called to sustain the glory of God in a generation. You know how pathetic it is to think that the church of Jesus Christ can be used by God to do anything? Have you hung around in the church for very long? We're not a very impressive lot. We are sheep, and we very quickly wander. And yet God has chosen to sustain the glory of God in a generation, in and through us, a widow. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. The treasury, so in the temple, the treasury is almost like a cap on the top of the temple. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, isn't it an interesting thought to think that Jesus watches when people are giving? That he notices what you're giving? He knows if you're giving out of much. Like if you have a lake and you take a scoopful out of it, it's not very impressive. But if you have a scoopful and you take a scoopful out and you give it, and you give out of weakness, it stands out to Jesus. You'll notice it here. Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Well, she only gave two mites. What do you mean she put in more? For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. Or we could say it this way, she out of her weakness put in all that she had her whole livelihood. Giving in scarcity. So you have nothing, you have one cake left, and the mighty prophet comes to town. Well, you know what, this just seems like a bad deal, a bad situation. Couldn't you come to me, God, when I have more? Instead, he comes when you have nothing. Giving in scarcity. When resources are scarcest, pour out that which you do have. And there was a sore famine in Samaria. So, what is the most precious commodity? Well, water is pretty precious right now. When it hasn't rained for three and a half years, water has a lot of value. It's probably to the point where it's like, yeah, a barrel of water, only a king could afford that. You see, who could act? I mean, you have to truck this stuff in from other nations that aren't in famine. How do you deal with water issues? You have a dying world around you. There was a sore famine in Samaria. And call you on... So this is right after the widow. Elijah, for some reason, is initiated by God to make an encounter with Ahab. And Ahab has been wanting to kill Elijah for three and a half years. Maybe longer, but we at least know for three and a half years. Why? Because Elijah prayed that the rains would stop. So... Why wouldn't Ahab just kill Elijah when Elijah shows up? Because Ahab needs Elijah. What does he need Elijah to do? He needs Elijah to reverse this whole thing. You see, Ahab can't do it. Ahab knows, has no position with God. So he needs to walk delicately in this matter. And he needs Elijah to do the prayer thing again. Could you do that thing in reverse and get it to rain again? And then I'll kill you. And so in the meantime, he has to do whatever Elijah says. So Elijah says, bring all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal, and I'll show up as the prophet of the Lord. And you guys can build an altar, and you can call down upon, from your God, and if 
He answers in fire, then we'll know he's God. I'll call down, and if my God answers in fire, we'll know that he's God. The God that answereth by fire, let him be God. Okay, now, let's think this through. We're in a time of drought. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. Can you think of anything worse than fire at a time of drought? And yet, that is what God chooses. When you're in your time of drought, you know what God sends first before the rain? Fire. He seems to burn up everything in your life so that there's an absolute crying out for the rains to come. The rains will come. They quickly follow the fire. But God needs to burn away you so that he can move in and flourish and bring the green of his kingdom to bear. So here we have a picture of that. And call you on the name of your gods. This is Elijah talking. And I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, well, it's well spoken. And with the stones, so then the prophets of Baal dance around. They cut themselves. And guess what? No fire comes because Baal is not a god. He is not real. He is merely a, st- a stone statue, and he's, he's nothing. He's a god of wood and stone. And with the stones, then Elijah, it was his turn, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Well, the name of the Lord is Jehovah. So this is Jehovah's altar. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as wood contained two measures of seed, and he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood and said, listen to this line, fill four barrels with water. Well, uh, what are we going to do with the water? That's, that's a lot of precious water. Imagine all of Israel going, hey, that's some precious water there. What are you doing with it? What does Elijah do? He dumps it on the altar of Jehovah. By the way, what we are about to see, the language even used in the Hebrew is one of eating. And this altar is a gift unto Jehovah. And when it says that he consumed the altar, it means, like a mouth, consuming and eating. And then he laps up the water. You know what the term is? It's like a tongue licking. We feed God first. Isn't that an amazing statement? So watch what's happening here. Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. Four more barrels of water? Oh, and you could imagine Ahab. Do what he says. I'll kill him afterwards. Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. Water is scarce, buddy. What are you doing? You're wasting it. Is this a waste? Was it a waste for Mary to break open the spikenard upon Jesus' feet? That which you put your trust in, pour it out on the altar of Jehovah. And what are they doing? Elijah is commanding. He has them in the hollow of his hand because they need rain. To get rain, give up your water. You want rain? Give up your water. And they did it the third time, and the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. More water. Water everywhere. Could you imagine the Israelites are getting thirsty looking at this altar? But that is not their water. It is consecrated unto the living God. That is not their spikenard. It's not Judas's spikenard. He can think all he wants, but that belongs to Jehovah. What's 12 barrels of water when a great rain comes? Nothing. And yet it sure does feel like a lot in this moment, doesn't it? Because when something is scarce, it seems like everything. When something's in abundance, oh, 12 barrels, pour it out. But that's not when God asks for it. God asks for it when it's scarce. So when it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, 
Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust. Consumed, like I said, it's like to eat. And then, and licked up. That's like the term for lapping up out of, out of uh, a, a river. And licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now listen closely. And Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of an abundance of rain. First things first. You give up the little you have. On the altar of Jehovah, hark, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. The rain follows you giving up the little you have. How about the widow? The plenty or the flour, the endless supply of flour and oil, what did it follow? Giving up the little she had to the prophet Elijah. You see a pattern here that God's trying to set for us? First things first, if you need bread, give up the little meal you have. If you need rain, give up the little water you have. If you need energy, give up the little energy you have. If you need strength, give up the little strength you have. If you need time, give up the little time you have. If you need God, give up being a God in your own life. If you need life, give up your life. Aren't you wanting to live? Isn't that what you're saying? You want to be alive. Well, then give up your life. Well, that's all I have is my life. Yeah, but your life is death. Give up your life so that you can truly have life. All I have is 12 barrels. I'm not about to give up my 12 barrels. Well, then you'll not ever see the rain, and your barrels will eventually run dry. If all you have is the lake, and you're finding your strength and your confidence in your lake, and you're making fun of all of us that have puddles, your lake will eventually dry up because your confidence is in something other than the living God. Transfer your confidence from that which you see in this natural realm and that which jingles in the hand and jingles and your bank account, and put your confidence in the living one. Here's a little collection of scriptures to say exactly that. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Whosoever shall give up the cake. Whosoever shall give up the 12 barrels. Whosoever is willing to relinquish the spikenard. Whosoever is willing to give up that son. Whosoever is willing to give up their life will find life. It's the principle of the kingdom. We need rain in the church of Jesus Christ. But most of us are hanging on to our barrels. And we're saying, that's the little I have. I can't give it up. And as a result, your water will run dry. But if you're willing to function the way God has commissioned us to function, we take the little we have and we say, this belongs to Jesus. And as a result, we end up discovering that out of weakness, his strength is made perfect. Dump out the precious barrels of water during the drought, and the abundant rains will surely follow. For we are the circumcision, says Paul, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. 
and have no confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in our own flour and oil. We have no confidence in our own water barrels. We have no confidence in the fact that our son can grow up with his strong back provide for us. We have no confidence in our box of spike nard. We do not put confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And Paul could in this situation say, I have, I've had boxes of spike nard. I had sons that could grow up and provide for me. I had barrels of water. I had flour and oil. But what's his list? He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law, Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He's saying, I have a reason to lean on what I have. I don't need to go to God. I have a big lake. And Paul considered his lake dung. But that which were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ's sake. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He gave up his lake? Paul, what are you doing? That's a huge lake! C.T. Studd was one of the wealthiest men in all of England. He gave up his entire fortunes, like a Bill Gates fortune, and he went on the mission field to China. What? What are you doing, C.T.? No, we could have used that. That's what Judas said. We're talking about the feet of Jesus. Is he not worthy? God did not correct Mary of Bethany. He commended her. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which was of God by faith. Christianity. Here's a quick summation. Weakness made strong in order to pour out its strength upon the weak. So, weakness that is made strong in order that in its strength may give its strength to the weak. That's Christianity. You see, you are made strong. Though you are weak, you are made strong so that you can give your strength to the weak. So that's how it works. God doesn't intend to keep you just weak. He intends to make you strong so that you can give of your strength to the weak. So here's probably the most healthy way of roaring. I am Christian. See my God roar. And that's Christianity. You see, it's not us that really roar. We borrow his roar. We don't actually have a roar. How pathetic is that? We're sheep. But we do have a roar. It's hard to explain, but it's his roar in us. And we have a confidence and a strength and a power and a might in this hour. Though we are the weaker vessel, you have something to brag about if you're a woman. I'm weaker than you, and that means I get more strength. And it's true. The weaker you are, Jesus became weak. And have we ever seen the strength of God made manifest in a greater way than in and through him? It's okay to be weak. Just don't blame your weakness or the lassitude of your moral living on weakness. You turn to Jesus Christ in your weakness, and your weakness then becomes the soil through which the manifestation and the growth of his strength His majesty and his power is revealed. It's quite amazing.
Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.